0: One of the things I want to mention, and that has to do with religious liberty itself. As you know, there's a lot of discussion involving religious liberty that we've seen in recent months and over the past several years, and really it started with COVID. It was such an eerie experience. How many of you recall the impact of COVID came to our doorsteps and churches started getting shuttered? Uh, we learned a new word. And also there was discussion over masks and, and vaccines, the efficacy of it. People started to question whether the government had the jurisdiction or even the authority to enact some of the uh, protocols and, and initiatives. And I remember um, I also serve as communication director going to the conference office, because as you remember, essential workers were permitted to go to their offices. And I remember meeting with the officers and the office would be empty on a weekday. And we were constantly uh, thinking of ways to get the message out, to share with the members and pastors and churches what is taking place, because none of us knew what was really going on at that time. And of course, here we are today, in the midst of, of of some controversy, we've some of the mandates that we witnessed earlier on have now been lifted, and we're uh, entering a new frontier. But one of the things that I want to mention is the importance when it comes to religious liberty in having a thoroughly Adventist perspective and worldview when it concerns religious liberty. And by the way, what that means is that we can't be obtaining our religious liberty information from sources like the news or our favorite radio personalities and TV personalities, because at the end of the day, the Adventist understanding of religious liberty is A unique one and it's informed by really two things and there are others of course but it's really informed by our understanding of the Sabbath question that will take place at the end of time the controversy over the Sabbath or the Sabbath test informs our understanding of religious liberty and Pastor Mark touched upon some of that this morning but secondly I would say that our eschatology, our understanding of end-time events, also informs our understanding of religious liberty. And Pastor Mark touched upon this today, and that is the two-fold union of both a power that incorporates a church and state union or power that will play a major role at the end of time. And so keep in mind that it's very important in these times to obtain a very thorough understanding of what Adventism teaches as it relates to religious liberty. And one of the things I also want to mention is some of the disunity or some of the challenges that we've been facing as a church community. But we're seeing a lot of disunity in the church. And one of the things that I want to mention, there's a study that was taken out of the University of Virginia, the Center for Politics Identity. And one of the things that it mentions that just shows you the increasing polarization in this country. How many of you are noticing the rampant disunity and the challenges facing our country today? I mean, the divide is very, very serious. And so uh, with that said, In this study, you'll see some of the elements that are are very concerning. As a matter of fact, you're finding more and more Americans are getting comfortable with the idea of succeeding from the union over political differences. And I want to share here this morning that political affiliation and party loyalty If we as Adventists are inundated or partake of these alliances, the divide will take place not just out there, but in the midst of our own churches. And we need to be very cautious and careful to pause and not allow political division to enter our churches. And I don't think it's rocket science to understand and to be aware of the very fact that when we identify politically as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we bring that partisanship into the halls and walls of our churches, and it leads to further division. So I want to make an appeal this morning that we are intentional in not allowing for that to happen. And of course, we see inspiration also clearly understood that politics— and our involvement in it will lead to contention and increased disorder. I want to turn our attention to the church in Corinth. How many of you have studied the church in Corinth? And here we find in this church a church that was suffering from a lot of division. Of course, the Bible states in, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians that there was much jealousy, And strife and quarreling that was taking place and they also had this challenge because they were following different leaders for some it was Paul and for others it was Apollos or Cephas and others were claiming Christ and we see some of these types of activities in our churches today And I want to turn your attention to a particular challenge that the church was facing at that time. And let me illustrate it this way. As many of you know, I love food very much. And how many of you have gone to a restaurant and you walk in the door and you see a a Buddha or some type of idol with some food? and some burning incense, right? And obviously they are uh, dedicating their business, their restaurant to their gods. But I would expect that not many of you would open the door and see that and walk out, right? Most of us will go ahead and enter the church or, or the restaurant and partake of the food. Now, this is the type of challenge that was taking place during the time of Paul in the Corinthian church. And what we see happening there is something like this. You have one side, one side of this question, those who had this, what they call true knowledge, right? And so they were saying that this food that's dedicated to idols or or idolatry, we reject that narrative. There's no reason why we have to accept this narrative that when we eat this food, that even though this food has been dedicated to idol worship and so on, that that reality and that narrative doesn't have to dictate my personal actions. I'm free. I'm liberated from this reality. So you had one side of the church that held to this position. Then you had another side where they were eating this food that was dedicated to idols. And in fact, they assumed that it was, in fact, being eaten on behalf of idol worship. And if you read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if anyone sees you who has this knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, Paul says, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed for and brother for whom Christ died therefore if food makes my brother stumble i will never eat meat lest i make my brother stumble and so paul is uh, here clarifying this issue this tension that's taking place between two sides of the church one side that's saying it's not a big deal to eat this food that is dedicated to idols because i reject that narrative and others who didn't have that understanding. So what Paul is really addressing is the group that was eating this food that was dedicated to idols. He's particularly addressing those on this side that even though you might have the right or the prerogative to partake of that food, and you may even be justified because you have this true understanding of reality as it pertains to these things. Nevertheless, Don't move forward with your actions and that you and I should pause before eating because of the implications it might have in making someone stumble. The Bible goes on to say, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question as he's concluding on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and the sake of conscience. very interesting what the Bible says. That you are not to eat of this food if someone would inform you that this food was in fact dedicated to idols. Paul's counsel is don't eat that food. Why? For the sake of conscience. And notice what he says. It's not your conscience, but the other person's conscience. That we need to consider other people's needs, other people's consciences and their susceptibilities before engaging in any action. And and notice what Paul says. I don't mean your conscience. But his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Amen. I praise the Lord that no one else's conscience can become my conscience and and the basis for judgment upon myself, that my conscience ultimately is based on, on where I stand, as it's informed by the Bible, as Mark mentioned this morning, as it's informed by the Word of God, and my relationship with God is all that matters, and we are not to even care what other people may think about us, because my liberty is not determined by someone else's conscience. So whether you eat or drink, and by the way, this passage that Adventists have traditionally used, First Corinthians chapter 10:31, needs to be seen within the construct and the narrative of what we're sharing here this morning. That what we eat and what we drink, and in all that we do and whatever we do, to do all to the glory of God, Amen. and not to give a, a offense, to not offend others unnecessarily the jews or or the greeks or to the church of god and as paul stated just as i try to please everyone in everything i do not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved to summarize you and i before we engage in verbiage or actions even when we know we're right on the matter It doesn't necessarily give us the right as Christians to proceed forward because we must always contemplate and consider how my actions and how my words may impact or affect another person's salvation. Amen? And so this is really the the point that Paul is making. It's really the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And moving along, of course, Paul himself refused the right to be upheld by the tithes and offerings of the churches in Corinth because he did not want to be a stumbling block to others. As you know, there were many factions going on. Paul, many were disputing the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. And so as a result, he didn't want to place any type of stumbling block in the way of him proceeding with the gospel message. He wanted to keep the channels or the doors open so that all might be saved in the kingdom of God. And that is why he wrote, and he says here, all things may be lawful, and this was a scripture reading this morning. It may be lawful, it may be legitimate, you may have the right, And you may be in the right, but not all things may be profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things may edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And I love these words here. It's within this vein that Paul states these words. The Jew, I became a Jew. And by the way, friends, how many of you believe that we need to be winsome? as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. You know, Pastor Doug Bachelor often talks about we're not baptized in pickle juice. Amen? We're baptized in the blood of, of Jesus. And God can make us happy and courteous Christians. Amen? And this is essentially what Paul is stating here. That to the Jews, I became as a Jew... That because he wanted to be winsome in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those outside of the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people. By all means I might save some." So there's an aspect of adaptability. One of the things that our conference president shared with us in in a worship service or in a staff meeting, as the churches began to open their doors again, and as some of the people in the conference offices started going out preaching. And one of the things that he shared in council was this, that as you go out, it might be a good idea to get some intel Right? On some of these churches. Because our churches were reflective of, of what we saw in this country. There were some uh, churches that were very much about wearing masks. And there were some churches that were very much not about wearing masks. And instead of uh, allowing the, the mask to get in the way of the message, he said, find out what's going on in those churches. And if it's a church where, where they mask up, then by God's grace, wear the mask. And if it's a church that doesn't, and if you're comfortable with it, then perhaps you might take off the mask. And of course, some of that was contingent on where we were in the pandemic and so forth, and for us to use our own judgment. But how many of you believe that we need to not allow some of the things that have impeded the the forward progress of openness to the message. And it's very important that we don't permit or allow the minor things to somehow get in the way of what's truly important for us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Paul stated this, we have not made use of this right, this right to being supported by the funding of the Corinthians. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. How important this principle that we put no barriers, no impediments to the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, at the end of the day, It's all about the mission. And what is our mission as Seventh-day Adventist Christians? That is to take the everlasting gospel to every nation, to every kindred, and tongue, and people. Notice what it says about the Apostle Paul. He labored for men of every nation, tongue, and people. And by the way in laboring for men of every nation, tongue, and people in their day. That was the Greeks, the Jews, the Romans, etc. In our day today, and I want to bring this point home. Every nation, tongue, and people for us today means those who may be pro masked maybe those who are anti masked it, it pertains to blacks and whites. It pertains to the rich and the poor. Every segment in society where we're seeing division today, Paul's words are relevant for us in a world that is divided today. And notice what it says. He labored for men of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, sought to meet the varied classes on their own ground. He avoided making prominent the differences between himself And then he strove to lay aside his personal feelings and to bear with the prejudices of the persons for whom he was laboring. How many of you think that if we incorporated these ideas, these thoughts into our own life, that we do a much better job at maintaining unity, first and foremost, amongst ourselves? But also, we do a better job of not placing roadblocks as we minister to those outside of our church walls. We know that Jesus himself followed this very principle. And of course, there were those who oversaw the temple uh, collections in terms of the taxes. And of course, they came to, to Peter, and they asked him if... Jesus was going to pay that temple tax. And what was Jesus' response? Absolutely, right? And part of his motivation responding in such a way is he was defending the reputation, and he wanted Jesus to look good in the eyes of others. And so he spoke ahead of Christ. And of course, Jesus pulled them aside later on and asked him this question because at the end of the day jesus himself was exempt from that tax at the time the levites and also the the priests were exempted right as persons as individuals that worked for the temple and certainly if they were exempted the son of god himself was certainly exempted and so that's why jesus goes to peter and asks him these words What do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from their strangers? And Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And notice Jesus' words. Lest we offend, I know that by right I am not obligated to pay this tax. But he said, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take a fish that comes first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money and take that and give to them for me and for you. And notice this commentary we find. While Jesus made it plain that he was not under obligation to pay the tribute, he entered into no controversy For they would have misinterpreted his word, and lest he should give offense by withholding the tribute, he did that which he could not justly be required to do. This lesson would be of great value to the disciples. Christ taught them not to place themselves needlessly. Antagonism to the established order. So far as possible, they were to avoid giving occasion for misinterpretation of their faith. In reflecting upon this, there are several guiding principles that we can come away from as we look at the narrative we find in the Corinthian church and also in the words of Jesus in his context with the temple. Number one, that we are not to put any obstacles in the way of the missional objective. Number two, to refrain from actions or verbiage that could stymie the openness to Adventism. Also to keep the witnessing reach, or the doors open, I should say, so that we can reach every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That we are to be willing to sacrifice even our own rights and even being right for the sake of the gospel mission. The other thing is, is that we are to be winsome and adaptable and not to make peripheral issues the main thing and to refrain from the needless antagonism of the established order. And by the way, we need to keep the channels open in our church so that we can continue to be a witness to the world. So the application here, one of the things that we're seeing today, and Mark uh, touched upon this this morning, and that is in recent weeks and and months, we've seen some increasing rhetoric against our authorities, the the government, and so forth. And it's very important that Seventh-day Adventists do not come down on a certain or particular partisan side, because we need to reach, and how many of you believe we need to reach both Democrats and Republicans, that that there are people to be saved in both parties in this country, amen? And so we cannot afford to do anything that would shut the door. And also, we need to be very careful not to raise our voices or to arouse suspicion against government authorities to keep the channels and the doors open. And many of you, it's it's not a surprise to you that those who were involved, for example, in the events of, of January 6th or at the Capitol, when we saw events take place, and now the Justice Department is, of course, going after many of those who are participants of those activities, and we cannot afford to jeopardize, to arouse suspicion at any level with the Adventist church and to be associated with any of these types of movements for two reasons. Number one, the government can shut the doors to entities and movements that they see subversive to government authorities. But also, we can lose the public opinion or the favor of the public audience and thereby cut off our potential witness to reach all classes of people. It's on this basis that I read these words. We should remember that the world will judge us by what we appear to be. Friends, perception and reputation is not everything. But it is important, amen? Because ultimately, we as Seventh-day Adventists, as a church entity, are commissioned to share the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And if we can do so, we must protect that reputation. She goes on to say, before we come fully to the front, and what she means by that is when the Sabbath test occurs, when we come to the fully to the front, let us seek to it that the Holy Spirit is poured out from on high. And when this is the case, we shall give a decided message, but it will be of a far less condemnatory character than that which we have been giving. And all who believe uh, will be far more earnest for the salvation of our opponents. Friends, it's important that we are actually interested in the salvation of those that we disagree with. Amen. Let God have the matter of condemning authorities and governments wholly in his own keeping. By some of our brethren, many things have been spoken and written that are interpreted as expressing antagonism to government and law. It is a mistake thus to lay ourselves open to misunderstanding. We need to keep those channels and doors open so that we can minister to every nation kindred tongue of people we can't do anything that will arouse people's combativeness and notice the reason why we are not to condemn authorities and entities within our governments and even personalities for this could close the doors of access to the people again from the government either shutting down our capacity to do it or losing our influence with the people out in the public. Notice the posture and the guidance that the spirit of prophecy provides in relation to the Sunday laws that we saw in the late 1880s and the early 1890s. As discussion was taking place, as Sunday laws were being discussed in this very land, right? The spirit of prophecy counsels very explicitly that they were not to go out and in in a spirit of antagonism and a spirit of defiance. But to the contrary, they were not doing God's will, she says, by braving opposition. Because of its potential to create uh, prejudice and bitterness become impossible for the truth to be proclaimed with that type of movement. Make no demonstration on Sunday in defiance of the law. We can use Sunday as a day on which to carry forward work that will tell on the side of Christ. We are to be winsome in our community, and not to allow, even when it concerns the matters of truth that we believe in. And by the way, this was the real legitimate test that you and I will one day face, that they were experiencing. And of course, it wasn't the the actual events that led to the time of the end. But we believe that that time is going to come soon. And even in the context of the real thing, Her guidance was don't stand in defiance, but quietly do the work of mission and don't do anything that would jeopardize the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in taking the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. One of the things that Mark touched upon this morning that I really appreciated, and I do believe that some of the emphasis or the hyperbolic emphasis that we're seeing with this emphasis on and against government authorities, could arise from a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what we believe prophetically as an Adventist people. And if you remember with me, one of the things that I remember at the height of COVID, when everything was shut down and the mandates were out, in full force. How many of you heard words similar to the words you see here? The stage is being set with these mandates. It was almost as though we were on a beeline track that these secular authorities, these global elites, the entities, the movements of the Great Reset, everything was leading up to a totalitarian, authoritarian regime that would bring about persecution and the end times and while this was going on friends i knew based on bible prophecy i knew for a fact that we were not on a beeline towards the end of time i knew it but the bible clearly indicates that we see here forewarns telling us what will take place in our future and One of the things that we know in the last times is that the movement that leads towards the final crisis will ultimately be a religious, a combined religious and state power. And we know that the movement and the test will ultimately be over religious matters or religious concerns. We see that in Revelation chapter 13. And of course, Pastor Bart brought this out as well, that this land beast has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon that we have identified as the United States of America. It exercises, meaning this land beast, the United States exercises all the authority of the first beast and makes or causes the earth and its inhabitants to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So very clearly we see that the issue at the end will involve religion and worship. If you go to Revelation chapter 17, we see a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names and on her forehead was written the name of mystery, battle on the great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's Abomination, And again, this was mentioned this morning, the woman symbolized by the church or the medieval church, uh, the papacy would be sitting on uh, a state power or civil authority. And again, the emphasis here with the woman sitting on the beast is that it's the woman or the church that's leading the state and not the other way around. So as I saw this rhetoric and these words, that we were leading towards a secularized state that would ultimately bring about the end. I knew that that was not the case because ultimately it had to be a religious power that we saw because the issue at the end surrounds worship. And I also knew that it would be the church that leads the state in progression towards the end. And by the way, this has been our historic understanding as Seventh-day Adventist all along. And it doesn't get any more Adventist, historically speaking, when it concerns the books of Daniel and Revelation than Uriah Smith. And I want you to notice with me his words here. This prophecy, he's commenting on Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. This prophecy is more definite than others applicable to the Roman power in that it distinguishes between the church and And the state. We here have the woman, the church, seated upon the scarlet colored beast, the civil power by which she is upheld and which she controls and guides to her own ends as a rider controls the animal upon which he is seated. Very clearly our pioneers understood this application, and rightly so, that it would be the woman at the end leading civil authorities towards this persecution. And so when you have the revival of that mortal wound, right, because the the church's authority over the civil powers was severed in 1798, And, of course, with the resurrection, when that deadly wound is healed, we will see a revival, not just of the the papacy, because much of the influence and authority of the papacy was lost at that time as well. But you'll also see a revival of its dominance over civil authorities, And that is very, very clear. Just to share one other, and we're not going to read this, but S.N. Haskell wrote another book on... Daniel in Revelation, he mentions the very same thing and at the last sentence, that the church, the woman, is the one that guides and controls, constitutes this prostitute woman. Notice Ellen White's commentary. Very fascinating what she states in relation to Revelation 73. In the 17th of Revelation is foretold, the destruction of all the churches who corrupt themselves by idolatrous devotion to the service of the papacy. John writes, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy. Thus is represented the papal power which deceives all nations. And this is very striking how she identifies the land-beast power, and what is the mechanism by which this country hands over the authority and the worship belonging to the papacy, instigated by the papacy, what medium and how does this transference take place? Notice the words here. What is it that gives its kingdom to this power? Protestantism a power which, while professing to have the temper and spirit of a lamb and to be allied to heaven, speaks with the voice of a dragon. Very, very powerful, powerful words here. Religious powers allied to heaven by profession will show by their acts that they have the heart of a dragon. And the time is coming when God's people will feel the hand of persecution, right? A religious authority, a religious power will lead the way. And I, I don't want to uh, belabor this point, but I want us to focus on two words. You see the words when at the, the first word there and the word then, right? When the leading churches of the U.S., uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common. By the way, these doctrines that they hold by each other in common, are we as Seventh-day Adventists also going to believe with some of those doctrines? Absolutely, because it's going to incorporate teachings within the Christian faith that some of which we will also agree with. When the leading churches of the U.S. uniting upon such points of doctrine that are held by them in common Will influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the affliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. When, when a church power influences the state, in another place she talks how the executive uh, branch and the legislative branch will yield to the wishes of the people because ultimately they want to get re-elected into office, right? So very far from this notion that a totalitarian or secular authoritarian regime would lead the way to persecution, when you read the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, what emerges is you're going to find that it's going to be when leading churches, when they unite upon key doctrines, will influence the state, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy. When church and state unite, then you will have the formation of the image of the beast. The combined power of both church and state will lead the way. Just to share one other point that perhaps you've not considered. One of the things that I believe that Seventh-day Adventist Christians shouldn't get involved in debates, political debates, and one of the things that we find a lot in our society today is controversy and opinions in regards to uh, climate change, and that's something that I stay out of. But it's very interesting how climate-based disaster and natural disasters, as well as, as wars and ru- rumors of war, how these types of casualties will lead towards the formation of the end-time crisis. Notice, again, uh, these words. Satan puts his interpretation upon events, and they think as the world would have them, that the calamities which fill the land are result of Sunday breaking, and thinking to appease the wrath of God, these influential men will make laws enforcing Sunday observance. And we do know that there will be again, a religious basis for the final crisis. As we close, I also want to share there's a lot of of messaging and controversy even over our health message. And one thing that I feel very strongly about is that we have a lot of counsel as it relates to our health message. And one of the counsels is that the health message, the way that it's actually intended, it was never intended to be an abrasive sword utilized to chop people up, up and down. Amen? Amen. The health message is a medical missionary work characterized as a great entering wedge, not an abrasive sword, but as an entering wedge or the right hand of the gospel, as, as we often refer to it, that will break down prejudice as nothing else can. How many of you believe that we need to use the health message along these lines to open doors and not to shut them? Just to read one more, nothing will open doors. And again, this is the way that we are to implement and utilize the health message. She says, nothing will open doors for the truth. Like evangelistic medical missionary work, this will find access to hearts and minds and will be a means on converting many to the truth. It's so important that we understand and get things right at the end of time. I want to leave you with a couple of of points as we close. You know, much of the controversy that, that we're seeing today is a result of us dabbling in so many other Matters and concerns that really are minor matters. And we need to stick with the three angels' messages. We need to stick with the everlasting gospel, the role of the message of righteousness by faith at the end of time. And, and I want to leave you with these words. Speculative ideas should not be agitated, for there are peculiar minds that love to get some point that others do not accept and argue and attract everything to that one point. Twice I have been shown that everything of a character to cause our brethren to be diverted from the very points now essential for this time should be kept in the background. We need to follow the example of Jesus, amen, to be winsome as a people of God, I want us to focus on these last words. And this is the ultimately the example that we find in Christ, his posture at a time where there was much controversy. And by the way, in winning the battle and the war in the great controversy, it comes sometimes in a context where it appears that God's cause actually has lost the battle and the war. And I think of Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. To all extents and to all human appearances, in the very act of dying, Jesus won the war. He won the battle. And of course, that became the basis for him to ultimately complete the war and the battle that we're facing today. But victory in God's eyes, doesn't always come through winning in the way that the world defines winning. Amen? That sometimes winning comes by simple surrender and entrusting one's life into the hands of Jesus and God our Father. Sometimes it takes to engage in actions just like this, that when we are reviled, that we do not revile in return, that when we suffer, we do not threaten, but we continue to entrust our lives to him who judges justly. Is that your prayer? I know that it is my prayer that as we move forward, let us entrust our lives into the hand of God and that be so concerned asserting our rights and our rightness in all things. But sometimes it takes a mere surrender of our lives to God to entrust that he's in control and that he will win this battle that we call the great controversy. God bless you.